Syzygy episode 84, Spot Speeds Up. And welcome back for another edition of the Syzygy Podcast. My name is Chris Stewart and joining me fantastically on the other side of her office desk is Dr. Emily Brunson. Hi, Emily. Hello, hello. You've had a busy week. Yeah. It's been a busy week. Unexpectedly busy. I hear yesterday suddenly became really busy for you. What's going on? Yeah, well, some more people decided that they fancied spending a lot of money to <laughs> go not very far, but yeah, nonetheless yeah. into space. Including uh, Captain James T. Kirk himself. Um, Bill Shatner yes. was on a rocket going into space and including uh, a guy who did his PhD at the University of Sydney while I was there that, you know, I ran into a number of times. He's such a name dropper. Chris. I know, I know. And and suddenly he's going to space. So so Chris, Dr. Crispy is his DJ name, if, uh, if you happen to be tuning into this one. Well done for getting into space. That must have been really exciting. Bad. But Emily, what's what's your role in all of this? How did you suddenly get busy yesterday when they were going to space on Blue Origin, you know, manned mission number two. Well, apparently, if you just take the prefix of astro, you can apply that to a lot of different fields that I am supposedly an expert in. (laughs) All right. So you've you've graduated, have you? You've gone from, hang on, there's something about the moon. Let's get Emily, because she's moon girl, to... This is space, right? Who do we know who does space? Emily. Emily, let's get Emily on. So who were you talking with yesterday? Yeah, so I had a chat with Sky News uh, for a little while during the launch um, and obviously coming back down again as well. Um, Yeah, and even good old BBC Radio York gave me a bit of a ring and said, you know, do you want to go to space? And what was your answer? Of course. Of course. If you're paying, (laughs) BBC Radio York is prepared to pay, then Emily's going to go to space. I think that'd be awesome. I'd come and cheer you on. Not sure that I want to go to space. Do I want to go to space? You do want to go to space. I think it'd be fun. I think it's much more comfortable now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If if a 90-year-old can do it. Well, there is that. But then again, it's not just any 90-year-old. It's it's William Shatner. I mean, (laughs) you know... He's the dude. Anyway, that's exciting. Well, well done, Emily. Media superstar and go-to person on anything that involves above about 100 Ks, as far as we can tell. Yeah, that seems to be the line. You're now the expert on everything up there. So that's great. Fantastic. Well done. And, of course, you dropped in. A plug for the podcast. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. I had the, the Syzygy postcard uh, conveniently placed in the background, uh, although I think it was cropped out of several of the uh, pictures of me. Well, hello to the probably millions of new listeners that we now have as a result of you uh, covering William Shatner going to space. That's not what we're talking about today, though. That's a digression. Uh, today, today, we're going to be talking about something which, amazingly, we haven't really done before. We're, we're going to be um, chatting about something which is, which is in our kind of local backyard, right, of the solar system. And in the solar system, there are a bunch of really iconic things, right? If you, if you think about how would you describe or what picture would you find to describe the solar system, people might go for the rings of Saturn. That's a, that's a really iconic yeah. Picture, right? They it's might why it's go... a favourite of many people well, who indeed. need to look at other planets a little bit harder sometimes. Well, remind us what you... Like, you have a thing about this, don't you? You think that Saturn's a bit of a prima donna and your favourite planet is Venus? Mercury. Oh, Mercury. Oh, Mercury. Rocky little hot Mercury. But yeah, it doesn't get a lot of love except from this particular side of the, the astro podcasting world. So Mercury, big shout out. But I don't know that many people would be going, oh, Mercury is the iconic planet in the solar system. Probably, Probably not. not no. Maybe more should, but I'm guessing not many do. Um, but then you've got, you know, the, the the sort of rusty red rock of Mars, the red planet. You know, there's that. But one of the other really iconic ones is the biggest planet in the solar system. It's Jupiter. And in particular, one physical aspect of that planet, its big spot, its big red spot, right? This yeah. is, this is an, an iconic thing in the solar system. And we've yet to talk about it. So it's here we are. crazy. How do we get this far? Episode 84. The reason that we're going to talk about it today is because stuff's happening, right? Things change over time. And apparently Jupiter's big red spot is not quite what it used to be. So, Emily, what's going on up there on Jupiter? Take us through this one. 
Yeah. So obviously, we when we look at Jupiter, even through a relatively small telescope, in fact, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, Jupiter is quite nice, particularly in the UK in the evening sky at the moment. Easy target for a little telescope. Mm-hmm. Saw it actually just a few nights ago when we were out of the Astro Campus. So Very nice. Great target. And if you've got a small telescope, if you get it really nicely focused, you can actually even see this feature on Jupiter. Seriously? So you can see the spot. Yeah. Wow. Like when you say small telescope... Like how small is small? I can't I can't predict exactly what the small limit is, but we can definitely see it with our sixteen inch and I think with our twelve inch as well. Yeah, okay. So those are those are modest telescopes. It's yeah. not a pair of binoculars. No. With binoculars you could see the moons, I'm guessing. Maybe. Uh, uh yes you can. Yeah, yeah. You, you can. So yeah, but I'm not talking about you have to go to kind of like the biggest research telescopes in the world no. to see this stuff. No, right? no, no. No. You can actually so wow, that's that's really cool. Okay. Because I've seen I've looked at Jupiter through small telescopes and binoculars and things, and I've seen the the moons which is cool enough like being able to say oh wow those little dots those are moons actually going around another planet that's awesome but haven't seen um the the spot so the fact that you could go and grab a modest sized telescope and do that is really really cool okay so hence it being such an iconic thing in the solar system um so what's going on with the spot why are we paying attention to that today. Well, we've got some really exciting new research which has just come out from uh, Michael Wong from uh, UC Berkeley. Berkeley? Berkeley? I think, I think, I think Berkeley? Berkeley. Berkeley. I don't know. In California. If you're listening to this in California and you want to write in and tell us how we're supposed to pronounce that, please do. That'd be fun. Let's, let's go with Berkeley, I think. Yeah, let's do that one. Yeah. And what they've discovered is that actually, instead of kind of being a spot that's swirling around at a constant speed, the outer edges of the spot are speeding up. Okay. I I don't know if that's good or not. So let's delve into this. Is that a good thing? Are there, Can you even put good and bad on a, on a large spot on another planet? Why don't we wind this back a little bit? Emily, what is it? What is this? Like, it's, it's big, right? When we talk about the big red spot, it's big on, on, like, grand scale. So what is this thing? How big is it? What are we looking at when we see that? Yeah, well, that's a very good question, and we don't have all the answers, but we can at least describe what the spot is to our best observations. So Jupiter has uh, an atmosphere, extended atmosphere. It doesn't appear to have a particularly solid surface uh, underneath it. So it's not like kind of the Earth or Venus where you've got a rocky surface and then a thin atmosphere. It's just basically all atmosphere. Right. Okay. So when we talk about it being a gas giant, it's kind of, it's gas all the way down? Most of the way down. There's probably something interesting going on in the core, as especially under the intense pressure from the outer layers. Because remember how Jupiter's huge. It's big. Yeah, yeah. So the gravitational force coming down into the center is huge. And uh, we think there's some kind of metallic kind of core that's to do with its magnetic field and all this exciting stuff. But the important thing about its atmosphere is that that, of course, means that it's an it's a fluid and it moves. And uh, and even before you get to the point with a telescope of being able to see the spot, you can actually see the stripes on Jupiter from the different horizontal bands of clouds that happen. So you've got the equator and then you've kind of got parallel bands of clouds that go around Jupiter that way. Some amazing pictures. Which mission was it that that gave us some of the extraordinary images that have come out? I kind of feel like in the last decade or less so you might be thinking about juno yeah probably yeah when was that so 2017 or thereabouts i thought it was fairly recently and then yeah yeah, a whole bunch of just amazing images were sort of dumped freely available i think on the internet for people to go and just play with and some people have sort of you know played with and filtered and tidied those up into just some of the most extraordinary images they look like renaissance paintings don't they yeah Yeah, they're just just Beautiful things, Gorgeous. beautiful things. Yeah. Amongst which are, yeah, all these incredible bands of clouds. So th- these are these are what sort of sort of layers or not not strata, because that implies sort of vertically, you know, up and down away from the core. But yeah, bands going bands, around yeah. in what sort of uh, around as the planet spins. That's the idea. Yeah, well, they're linked to the rotation, but of course, because it's a fluid, not the whole surface of Jupiter doesn't go around as if it's a solid ball. It's got what we call differential rotation. So some bands of clouds go around faster than others. Okay, and so different different layers are sort of mixing around at the boundaries and giving us these amazing swirly swirly patterns and so on. Is there is like is there a fairly 
obvious rule to that? Like, is it sort of faster towards the equator and slower further away, or is it much more complicated than I that? I think the faster bands tend to be towards the equator, but I don't think it's kind of like a, a direct relationship that the faster you are, the closer you are. There seems to be um, some really interesting angular momentum sort of features going on there that uh, I haven't looked into in incredible detail, but yeah, some of the bands go faster. But come on, Emily, you're an expert on everything above 100 kilometers, surely. <laughs> you know all about, all about this stuff. So can I just back up a little bit? It just suddenly occurred to me, I don't actually know what it is. Like, what is Jupiter made of? What are these, like, what is the atmosphere? What are we looking at with all of these amazing bands and colors? Well, the interesting thing is that Jupiter is mostly just leftover sun. Okay. So it's stuff that the sun formed out of, but it wasn't quite big enough to form its own star, considerably yeah. smaller than it needed to be, I guess. Yeah. So we have sort of two different types of atmosphere in the solar system. We have primary atmospheres and secondary atmospheres. So primary atmospheres were just the, the stuff that was left over when the sun formed. It didn't quite make it into the sun. Lots of gas, mostly hydrogen, of course, but then a little bit of whatever else was left over in the cloud of gas and dust that formed the sun. And so, and then they've held on to that atmosphere. It's primary. It's the first atmosphere that they've had. Right. Jupiter's one of those. That applies from Jupiter out. Okay. Yeah. And however, um, planets like Earth, uh, Venus, even Mars have had secondary atmospheres because the sun's sort of light and uh, powerful solar winds have actually stripped off the primary atmospheres and then required other chemical elements, usually heavier chemical elements, to come in and form to make these secondary ones later on from tectonic activity, outgassing, that kind of thing. Right. And we've talked a little bit, bit about the difference between the inner planets and the outer planets before. Um, so when you say Jupiter is sort of that, that primary atmosphere so does that mean that what we're looking at when we look at jupiter is that mainly hydrogen then mainly but actually all the interesting stuff is of course the stuff that isn't hydrogen right okay. so there's lots of kind of complex molecules and things going on you've got lots of ammonias lots of uh, methane etc and then even some quite exotic uh sort of particles it was we don't really know for example why exactly are there different colors in the different bands of really? clouds like, I would have thought that would be one of the, the first things you'd nail down. Not that I'm blaming you. I'm not saying anyone's done anything wrong. I'm just saying you look at the thing and it's, it's such an extraordinary thing to look at. And the patterns and the colors are so amazing. Just naively, I would have thought, well, surely you'd have nailed that one down. Like yeah, it seems, on. it seems, even the Great Red Spot, we don't know exactly why it's red, for example. Weird. Yeah, we've got some reasonable ideas that are probably along the right lines. So we think that there's some different chemical elements that are being sort of dredged up uh, or at least exposed to the ultraviolet light on the... Because remember, we're only looking at the very tops of the clouds here. So they're being exposed to that light, which is changing their chemical composition and changing them into sort of basically redder things. But the exact process is not known. Is the problem here that... that I mean, A, it sounds really quite complex because you've got a lot of stuff mixing around and, you know, fluid dynamics is hard enough as it is. Atmospheric chemistry is hard enough when you can actually go out and take a sample of it. Do Trying to do that on another planet is even harder. Is part of the problem that we can't actually go and take a sample of it? Like, we can't actually get there to to get in really close and stick a jar out the window and grab some and have a look at it? Well, yeah, absolutely. And particularly when you're talking about sort of quite significant changes over a small, uh, relatively small area in terms of if we turn our telescopes to look at Jupiter, then we can take an overall kind of um, spectrogram of what are the chemical species that we can see. But it's very hard to say, is that coming from that cloud or is that that cloud right. or is that spot? Or... Yeah, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, that it's not that precise. You can look at Jupiter and go, it's got this in it. But yeah, yeah. But is that there or is it over here? And so you're saying you can't look at a particular bit like, you know, the, the boundary of the spot or something like that and say, what's in there with that method? Because uh, it's just not that precise. It's yeah, not that and we're accurate. not getting an, as much signal because this is all reflected light as well from the sun. So yeah. it's, it's all very tricky. Isn't that weird? I, I kind of take for granted, particularly after this many episodes of this podcast, Emily, you've done a, such a good job of selling me how good astronomy is at, yeah, we can look at that and figure out what it is, that I just blunder into things like this and think, well, surely we know all about the surface of Jupiter and what it's, what it's made of and, and how it's put together and why this does that. And actually, it's, every once in a while you realise, no, it's much harder than that. It's a lot more, <laughs> yeah. lot more subtle and complex than that. 
it's often true in astronomy that we know more about very, very distant objects in the universe than we know about things in our backyard. Which is weird, right? But that's kind of nice. It leaves us stuff to do. So, okay. One, I had one other question which I wanted to ask, which was, you were, you know, there's a lot of hydrogen and then there's all this other stuff there in the, in the clouds, in the atmosphere of Jupiter. Is all of that stuff left over from when it was formed? Like, was... was did the solar system form out of stuff that was already that mixed and, and complex? Or has Jupiter gained a lot of extra complexity over time? That's a good question. Um, Thank you. I thought so. Yeah, it is. Uh, so I guess the the majority of what Jupiter is made of was from its formation. But certainly it has acquired new stuff along the way. Uh, we only have to look back, I guess, a couple of decades when we saw the comet Shoemaker-Levy oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. hit Jupiter. And this is the kind of thing that Jupiter does all the time, right? There's lots of things that um, it's got a significant gravitational influence. So if you get in the wrong place and you're a, sort of a small body in the solar system, then, yeah, you, you might get eaten by Jupiter yeah, too. Yeah, you're going to get broken apart and, and, and sort of gobbled up by this massive planet. Yeah, that was amazing because it was... You know, it's not just that we could we could say, hey, look at this comet, which is, you know, it broke apart in like, what, a dozen pieces or something? And they all slammed into Jupiter. But they happened to do it from an angle that we could actually see really, really well. So there's some amazing sort of images of over over a period of, I can't remember how long, but a fairly short period of time of these great chunks of comet slamming into Jupiter. And I mean, it didn't really do a lot to Jupiter, but it did enough that you could actually see, oh yeah, that bit there, that's where the comet bit hit. And it sort of swirled around in the in the clouds for a while, which is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. And you think that that's happened in our lifetime, then, you know, over the course of the last four and a half billion years. Probably happened a lot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Chances are. And so it will have picked up what all sorts of stuff flinging itself around in, in comets. Yeah, lots of ices, water ices, um, complex um, organics even coming from the outer solar system. So, yeah, bits of pieces of stuff. Cool. So, summary is Jupiter is a lot of hydrogen, a lot of bunch of other stuff, and it's complicated, and it's got these amazing swirly patterns. But the one that we're focusing on today is the big swirly pattern known as the, the the big red spot, the giant red spot, the great red spot. Does it have an official name? It's the great red spot. The great red spot. Okay. Yeah. So what is it? Yeah, <laughs> we should have probably led with that. Well, let's bury the lead. We normally do. So what is this thing? Right. I think and kind of I'm trying to channel my inner meteorologist here. Okay. It's a counterclockwise high pressure region also known as an anticyclonic storm. It's a storm, right? It's what you're describing storm. here is a storm, which and we get those, right? We have those here on Earth. It's a it's a cyclone. It's the largest storm in the solar system. Well, okay, it's not just a cyclone. You could arguably say it's the cyclone, just <laughs> as the James Webb Space Telescope is the space telescope. This is the cyclonic storm in the in the solar system. Um, but for all of that, it's it's just a storm. Okay, so can we can we unpack that a little bit? There were a couple of different descriptors in there. A anticlockwise? Yep, count yeah, anticlockwise. Count counterclockwise, whichever way you want to say it. Yep. Not clockwise, the yep, other one. The other right? way. Um Presumably that's because it's in a particular hemisphere? Because that's what we get here on Earth, right? You get you get hurricanes or cyclones going one way in the north and the other way in the south. Good point. Yeah, yeah I hadn't yeah. thought about that. So presumably it's, that's the reason why it is on Jupiter as well? Probably. I mean, you've got lots of centrifugal... Um no, centrifugal forces. <laughs> Careful. We'll get, we'll get emails. <laughs> no. <laughs> the forces. What are the forces called? Coriolis. Coriolis forces. Yeah. Thank you. You can start it with C. Yeah, yeah. There we go. It's not like <laughs> these are relevant to my research at all. No. Coriolis forces. Yes, yeah, so you've got yeah. Coriolis forces going on. Yeah, so I imagine that, well, there's still questions about how angular momentum is distributed throughout the clouds of Jupiter and how it you know, dissipates through these sort of kind of uh, storms. But one of the interesting, I mean, there's lots of cool facts about the red, the giant red, great red spot that we're going to talk about. But one of them is it's lasted for an incredibly long time. Uh, at the upper estimate, we reckon it might be 356 years old. 356. Like I was almost waiting for you to sort of thousand, million, well, not well, billion, wouldn't have been billion. So 356 is a long time, but not on astronomical scale. Well, this is how long we've been observing it for. Right. Okay. So it's at least that and quite possibly much longer. Yeah. But oh. at least that. And I guess that raises the interesting question of, like, how long would you expect something like this to last for? 
Well, like if we've been watching it for several hundred years, you might, you know, and humans have been pretty good at that throughout our history. Well, if it's been there as long as I can see it, it must have been there forever, right? So clearly the, the spot is just a thing that Jupiter has and it'll be there forever. But that's, that's not the case because it is changing, right? It is changing. And what's interesting is that we thankfully do not have storms that last hundreds of years here on Earth, right? And the main reason for that is because the energy and the angular momentum is actually dissipated by friction through the rest of the atmosphere. So it basically runs out of steam. Right. Uh, whereas in the atmosphere of Jupiter, that's not so much the case. There's not that way to dump the angular momentum to get it out of the storm, basically. So it's very, very likely that this storm will last for a long time yet. Um, at least current predictions say it should last at least another 50 to 60 years based on very conservative models. But who knows? It could be thousands of years old. It could go for thousands of years in the future. That's an amazing idea that, that like, I really do have the, it, it's such a part of Jupiter, you know, when, when you, if you were to draw, like even any kid who spent any time learning about the planets, if they were to draw planets, they'd probably draw Saturn with some rings around it. And they would probably draw a Jupiter with a spot on it, you know, fairly high probability. And the idea that, you know, future generations of children, not many down the track, would not do that because it's not there anymore. That's kind of weird. Yeah. We don't normally have in astronomical scales something that prominent being that time scale kind of feels to me like it's either over like that you know or it lasts for effectively forever i can't think of many other things which are sort of on the almost human time scale yeah it's interesting i mean even though your example about saturn's rings we just found out was it a couple of years ago that they're probably only you know ten thousand years old and the dinosaurs may not yeah. have seen them yeah yeah so yeah. had the had the dinosaurs been able to get their tiny little arms up to hold a telescope they may may not have seen the seen the rings yeah i hadn't really thought about that but even then 10,000 years is a long time whereas hundreds yeah oh. well i'm i'm not saying that it really yeah. is a thousand years maybe it will be another 10,000 years the spot I'm... if the spot is still around in 100 years i won't hold you personally responsible <laughs> okay so just going back to something you said a minute ago um Storms on Earth don't tend to last terribly long. I mean, the, the biggest ones, things like, you know, massive hurricanes, cyclones, last maybe days to sort of a week as they're building up over the oceans, hit land and just dump all of this energy and momentum on the land, generally. Um, or maybe they'll head back out over, over the ocean and just slowly dissipate all that energy back over the ocean. But it's sort of a time scale of maybe a week, right? Smaller storms, hours to a day, you know, it might be brewing up and then dump all of its energy. This one is considerably bigger, but is what you're also saying that it's that there's just presumably less of a mechanism for it to actually lose that energy. Yeah, exactly. And transfer it somewhere yeah. else. And so it just keeps going, swirling around. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So it's, it's very interesting. And if we think about the rotation of the spot, because I sort of like to sort of figure out like well what does that mean the spot's rotating um it's actually again it's not rotating like a solid body so what's really um cool is that the ring that's the outer sort of boundary edge of the spot as you would draw it that's the bit that's rotating quite quickly so we that's kind of going around once every six days or so wow that quick yeah because it's a big thing right yeah, can absolutely. We, can we? Do you have any? Do you have any stats on it? How oh yeah, I've, big... got, I've got you some stats. On yeah, this. yeah, yeah. How <laughs> how big is the spot? Because it is big. That yeah. Much I know. Well, it's well, it's that question does actually depend on when you measured it. Right. Okay. But we'll come back to that. All right. All right. But all right. Currently, well, in around 2017, when the last sort of precision measurement was that I could pull out was 16,000 kilometers wide. Okay. Can we put that in some kind of context? What's the diameter of the Earth? It's about 1.3 times the diameter of the Earth. Wow. That's a really big storm. Yeah. <laughs> wow. It's pretty big. That's kind of nuts. And that's on its longest edge. So if you imagine kind of it's an ellipsoid, mm -hmm. it's a, yeah. Um, although what's very interesting is the spot is, I guess you could call it shrinking or becoming more circular over time. Okay. So over the last, uh, especially I think since the last three or four years, it's become much more circular. And uh, there's some really interesting sort of pictures of you can get from going from almost like really long, not quite cigar, but, you know, quite squashed circle coming up to being a much more circular shape in 2020, 2021. Has it been sort of changing 
like regularly over time or does it sort of squish and squash and get bigger and smaller or has it just been slowly running out of juice over those 300 years that we've known it's there? Well, this is a really difficult question because the measurements that we have that are precision measurements are really only ever happened in the last couple of decades. Right. Yeah, this is where it gets hard. Yeah. Yeah. And this is coming back also to the premise of, guess, of the paper because this paper is based on Hubble data when Hubble's been observing this spot with uh, really high resolution for about 11 years. Okay. So 11 years, a lot of good data, but it doesn't really tell us terribly much about long-scale changes. And presumably, the vast majority of those 300-plus years that we've known it's there, it was very, very fuzzy. And, oh, look, there's a spot on Jupiter, and that's about as good as we could do. Yeah, and even, well, I I got rid a bit about this because I got quite a little bit into it because there's uh, some really interesting sort of question marks about how, whether these observations from sort of 350 years ago are real observations or not. And there's some interesting characters that you might mm. recognise along the way as well. Okay, all right. Well, shall we delve back and do a little bit of, yeah, bit of history then? History of the spot. Let's do it. So, of course, we've been observing Jupiter uh, with the naked eye since people started looking up, let's be honest, right? Sure. Um, But it wasn't until we had the application of the telescope or the telescope applied to astronomy that we started to see some of the more detailed things going on, which, of course, meant you're talking about the 1600s. So our first maybe record of Jupiter's great red spot comes in 1665 from a name you might be familiar with, which is Giovanni Cassini. Ah, yeah, okay. So Cassini was... uh, I mean, as people were in those days, quite interesting characters, <laughs> but someone who dabbled quite a lot in not only astronomy, but astrology. and It was all yeah. mixed together. You know, Newton went in for, for alchemy. Like there, there was the, the boundaries between what we would now say is hard science, proper mathematical, no, this is the real thing, and slightly dodgy or very dodgy pseudoscience. We, you know, we're quite sure as scientists where that boundary line is now. But it wasn't always that way. No, it wasn't no. always clear what was worthy of scientific pursuit and what was a dead end because there's just nothing there. And astrology, look, people have been trying to predict the future through the stars for a really long time. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, all sorts of possibilities there. Yeah. So Cassini was a bit of both. Yeah. yeah. And you think about what people called themselves back in those days, right? They didn't call themselves scientists. They called themselves things like natural philosophers. Yeah, which is just basically saying knowledge. You know, I seek knowledge. Stuff. Well, yeah, yeah, good, good. Using whatever tools you have available. So Cassini saw the Well, he wrote down that time. he saw a, a permanent spot, mm-hmm. which is interesting because he used the word permanent or whatever the you know Italian equivalent was. Um, so he clearly looked several times right. over a period of time and decided that that is actually a thing that is staying there. Well, it sounds, sounds legit. Yeah. yeah. He also noted the differential rotation of Jupiter, which... That's pretty cool. Differential rotation, as in... And then the clouds going at different oh, right. rates. Right. So uh, was right. able to see that level of detail. Yeah. Wow. It wasn't just like I'm imagining being able to see through a very old telescope, a very blurry blob, which has a smaller blob on it, right? And that's the spot. And clearly he's yeah. seen more than that. Yeah. Because so he can see different bands going at different rates, which is impressive. Yeah, so yeah. that was quite cool. Now, there is some discussion in, about uh, this kind of area of science history as to whether or not there was actually a previous record of Jupiter's great red spot in the previous year in 1664. Mm-hmm. And this is something written down by another name you might also uh, recall, which is Hook. Okay, Hook, as in of, because there have been a few hooks, I think, haven't there? But there's Hook as in Hook's this Law. This is the Hook. Hook yeah. The Hook, yeah. yeah. Hook's all over a whole bunch of stuff in, in physics and astronomy as well. Presumably. Yeah, he did astronomy, he did mathematics, he did physics, he did springs, clearly. Yeah, yeah you that know. Hook. So he does mention Hook, but that he saw a sort of feature on Jupiter. However, the kind of consensus opinion is maybe that was actually another spot. Oh, okay. Because it was in the wrong hemisphere, oh, maybe. Maybe he was looking at it upside down. Maybe, yeah. yeah. It's all a bit like... <laughs> maybe yeah. it was a smudge on his lens or something. Who knows? Yeah. Hmm. But, you know, so maybe Hook sure. saw it first, but right. definitely Cassini. Well, we'll give, we'll give Hook half a point and Cassini a full point, and that seems fair to me. Yeah, and then there were some loads of observations made following that between 1665 and 1713. People got quite excited. Um, and then 
they just stopped saying things about it, which is kind of weird. That's weird, right? Because I can imagine the sort of astronomical gold rush when you when the telescopes get good enough and it catches on that look if you look at this thing you can actually see detail like this thing that we've always thought of as just this little pinprick in the sky very bright one there's detail on it like we can see stuff quick record that do a drawing of it write it down i can imagine the gold rush that comes from that loads of people would then want to try to make discoveries but it went quiet. Why? Yeah, um, I don't know. Um, the next mention we have of the Great Red Spot comes in 1831, 118 years that's later. A, that's a big gap. So either there was terrible weather for a really long time, <laughs> uh, people were not very interested, or there might maybe have been other stuff going on. Records were lost if they were being yeah. made. It's just, or maybe the spot went away. I guess that's possible, isn't it? Yeah. So it feels unlikely, but. Yeah, that's a really long time to not be saying anything about a really prominent feature on the biggest planet. Yeah, it's, mm. it's really odd. Mm. Mystery. I like, I like mysteries like yeah. that. Cool. Okay, so that gets us into the 1830s, you say? Yeah, yeah. and then fairly regular observations. Um, what's interesting is that we do have uh, some kind of good records, enough to say that at least from 1904 to 2004, so 100 years, the spot has uh, shrunk to about half its size in the longest axis. Wow, that's that's a lot. It's a lot, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I didn't realise this thing was so, like... Um, not Changeable, dramatic. variable. I was going yeah, to say dramatic, but yeah, I guess it is, <laughs> yeah. guess it is yeah, dramatic. Yeah. Well, again, for something which, I don't know, maybe I'm the only one, but that something that feels to me like such a an integral part of this big planet, for it to be so changeable over relatively short, you know, human scale timeframes is really surprising. Mm. And have we, like it sounds from what you're saying, like what we've recorded is it getting smaller. Not that it, you know, from this time to this time, it got much bigger and then suddenly it turned sideways. And that, no, it seems to be, everything you've said so far is, it's getting smaller yeah. over time. Yeah, I mean, right. in one axis at least. So it's not like the, it's not shrinking away to nothing mm-hmm. because the other axis seems to be staying relatively stable. So what it's doing is going more from oval to circle. Right. And uh, based on the past hundred years of change if you just push that model forward which is maybe not necessarily a good thing to do but it's That's an interesting all we can thing do, to do so sure yeah um then it's going to be circular by by, by about 2040 okay and and then what does it just by the modeling does it just stay circular does it go really really thin does it your guess is as good as ah. mine yeah yeah cool. so it'd be a really nice circle then okay Nice. It's kind of satisfying. Nice. A little bit sort of Death Star-ish, but okay. So, yeah, the other thing that's very changeable about the spot, which I hadn't appreciated myself, is that the colour changes quite dramatically over so, time. So, the great red spot, not always red? Not always red. In fact, it varies in hue from kind of a, I guess, traditional English bricky kind of red. Mm-hmm. to Sort of terracotta. Yeah. yeah. Very nice. Uh, to white. Or white. pretty much just off-white, Yeah. So there's times when actually the bands of clouds around Jupiter look red and the spot looks white. And then there's other times it's vice versa. Weird. And is that, do we have any idea why? Like you said before, we don't really know what's going on down in there. Chemicals in the atmosphere, maybe. That's very hand wavy. It's about the chemicals. Well, yeah, it's an atmosphere. Ah, Cool. Okay, so the great red spot is not always as great and it's not always as red. So, okay, two for two there. We might have to go for the little white spot in the future. It's it's still a spot, though, so I guess we've got that. So um, we were sort of working our way through in history and we got through into into the, 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 the sort of towards the present time. You said before that we had some really good observations from Hubble. But what are, like, how have we been looking at Jupiter over, I don't know, the last several decades, the era of modern astronomy? We've obviously had a couple of missions to Jupiter, have any of them had a really good look at this feature? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is where, like you were saying, the images say from Juno, from, I mean, even since the Voyagers, Voyagers had Jupiter flybys, right, to look at. Yeah, of course, and that would have been, what, in the 70s? 80s, 70s, Well, how long did it take to get there? Yeah, a little while, but yeah, yeah. okay. So, yeah, we've been, so as long as we've been sending stuff Mm. to the outer solar system, we always get it to fly by Jupiter if we can, because it's handy to get you that little bit slingshot. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it gives you the speed boost, right, and so you may as well take some good pictures while you're going past. 
But what I love about this piece of research, coming back to, I guess, this particular paper that we're talking about, is that it's using Hubble data. Now, even in our last episode, we talked about, uh, touched on the fact that even Hubble is not relevant now, mm. right? It's still going and it's still doing good stuff. It's more than 30 years old, but even this last decade, which is the decade where these observations have been based on, it plays an incredible role in our understanding of our solar system because it's an instrument that has time. So you can point it at Jupiter fairly regularly when it has been pointed at Jupiter fairly regularly to look at its surface features. And it's got the resolution Mm. to be able to measure those features. So I think the smallest feature that we can measure with Hubble on the surface of Jupiter is about 170 kilometers across. That's pretty small. When, you, when you're talking about like a spot which is in the order of one and a half Earths across, to be able to see features down to, you know, 100 or so kilometers, that's impressive. It's very impressive. From something here. Yeah, you know. yeah. You know, Hubble's just in, just around planet Earth. And yeah. so it does also, I guess, highlight again something we said last week. Don't have to hark on about it. But, you know, James Webb is going to, again, be mm. able to look at these planets in even more high resolution. So that's exciting. And James Webb being, as we did discuss, almost exclusively in the infrared, is, it, is there stuff that we can learn about Jupiter looking down in the infrared there must be all sorts of things yeah super useful it's kind of like thermal imaging right 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 and even the spot has um it's slightly i think it's cooler in the center than uh, surrounding it so there's a temperature difference so you can measure that when Mm. you're looking in the infrared which is quite cool very cool i like that and just going back to juno for a second because that was what did you say 2017 around about yeah so remind me because that well you know even just in the name juno like it's about jupiter that's what it's doing what was juno designed to do like it gave us a lot of beautiful images but as we've discussed beautiful images is not synonymous with astronomy there's more to it than that so what was juno about so, yeah, was exploring Jupiter and its moons as well. So uh, you, we have spoken in some really early episodes about some other results from looking at uh, or particles that were detected in some of the plumes coming off um, oh, yeah. Io, I think it yes, was. Yes, I think that's right. That sounds right. Yeah, yeah, so we have and geez, that was an early guess, episode, yeah. wasn't it? <laughs> that was a long time ago, but yeah, we have we have looked at some of that data before, and yeah, it was looking at measurements of gravitational fields on things like Europa, seeing how that well, obviously not me- going down and measuring it with a mm. stick, but mm. using its proximity to the moon to look at maybe how dense is it, how big is this underwater ocean. So there were loads of science questions that Juno was up to. Uh, and it was a very successful mission. Mm. All right. So, Emily, we've kind of danced around this one, but I think it might be time for another Emily Brunsden patented patented stat attack. So can we have a Jupiter statistical rundown here? Um, you, do you want to test me? On yeah. Some numbers? Yeah. Well, it's not so much a test. You might have to guesstimate some of these numbers, but I'll forgive you if you. Mate, there's, there's going to be no estimation in the guesstimation here. It's all going to be complete guesswork. So hit I thought me. we should talk about wind speed because we're talking about sure. the fact yep. that the outer ring of the spot is speeding up, which is means the wind speed is speeding up. Yeah. Right? And this is a big storm. Like we've established, it's a storm. It's like a cyclone, but it's really big. So I'm now, I've got an image in my mind of take the biggest storm ever on earth and then just make it bigger so yep. i'm ready okay well let's yep. start on earth what's the do you know the what the highest wind speed that's ever been recorded on earth <laughs> no um hundreds hundreds of kilometers an hour yeah. um i i'm going to i'm going to guess 200 kilometers an hour <laughs> that's a mere mere sort of breath of air serious in. yeah seriously the um probably the most famous measurement is something called the big wind <laughs> Did we name things well? Was that named by an astronomer or an Australian or both? Well, it, actually, that's very interesting because <laughs> we're going to talk about an observatory and then we're going to talk about Australians. Anyway, uh, the first, the big wind actually was recorded at Mount Washington Observatory, mm-hmm. um, which is probably part of its fame, but it, it did hold the record for being the highest wind speed that wasn't in a tornado. We've got to kind of just put tornadoes. Yeah, tornadoes the, are weird anyway. They're different yeah. and we struggle to measure them anyway. So, yeah. Excluding tornadoes, the highest wind speed was recorded at 372 kilometers per hour. Wow, that's almost twice what I said. 
So, yeah. And that was the record until 1996. Yeah. What happened in 1996? Well, we had Tropical Cyclone Olivia. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that one? Like kind of vaguely, yeah. Um, it hit um, various places in Australia, including Barrow Island. Oh, yeah, ringing a bell. I mean, I wasn't in Australia at the time, but yeah, this is ringing a bell. So that gust got to 408 <laughs> kilometres per hour. <laughs> That's insane. The wind shouldn't get that fast. That's just not on. That's not okay. It's huge, isn't it? It's huge. <laughs> so, I mean, the estimated speed or the, the speed that we're seeing now in the um, outer clouds, the outer ring of Jupiter's red spot, do you want to have okay. a go at So, if the highest speed that we've recorded in the world is, let's call it 400, round it, round it down to the nearest 400. Jupiter's a lot bigger, um, but then again, I have absolutely no idea of the relative atmospheric thicknesses and blah 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 so i'm gonna guess it's faster and i'm gonna guess it's faster by a factor of two. Oh, so i'm gonna say 800 interesting it's not that oh. high <laughs> it's around well maybe 430 440 so like not far off yeah like let's call it the same pretty much yeah um and that's the measurement that's increased by eight percent over the last decade right okay so it's it's yeah, I mean, that's about the same as the fastest speeds you get on, on Earth, which is surprising, given the size of that storm. And maybe size is irrelevant. I don't know. Atmospheric scientists email us and tell us where I'm going wrong here. But um, but I would have guessed that you would have got some really quite full-on serious speeds there. And instead, it's just, well, terrifying, but still not, not quite where I thought it might be. Well, if you want to crank it up and find out some sort of slightly more exciting records. Go on then. Where's the highest wind speed in the solar system, would you think? <sighs> Where could it be? I mean, if it's not Jupiter. It's not Jupiter. And I'm guessing, by the way, that the great red spot or the slightly less great white-ish spot, depending on what we want to call it in the future. I'm guessing that that's probably where you're going to get the fastest wind speeds that we've seen on Jupiter. Okay, so let's we're leaving Jupiter behind. Saturn, I have no idea. Venus, I know, is a pretty nasty place to hang out. I'm going to guess Venus. It's Neptune. Neptune? Neptune. Who knew Neptune had evil winds? How fast does it get to Neptune? Well, take a stab. Okay, for this one, I'm going to say 800. Double, uh, double the Earth. Yeah? You're going to have to more than double again. Seriously? 1,770 kilometres oh per hour. God. On Neptune. On Neptune. Neptune, you little dark horse, you. Where did that come from? What's going on on Neptune that gives us those kind of speeds? Yeah, a lot of wind. Oh, well, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, yeah, it's just an interesting thing about being an ice giant. You get that, I guess there's a lot of warming. You've got massive winds going through the atmosphere. As it's, yeah, it's just crazy. Okay, I was about to ask you all sorts of questions about Neptune. That's going to take us way away from the Great Rift, but I think maybe we need to do another episode about Neptune at some point. Absolutely. I don't actually even know what you mean by it's an ice giant. So let's just park that and come back to Neptune, its ice giantality, and its wind speeds another time. Okay? Sometime mm-hmm. before episode 100, we're going to do Neptune. Right. Okay. Park it. Yeah. Final one. Yep. We have got a record for the highest speed, I guess, modeled, probably more than measured, on an exoplanet. Mm-hmm. Do you want to ever go? Oh, we've, we've done shows about this before, Emily, where we've talked about exoplanets, planets around other stars where there's been hideous wind speeds which blowing around shards of glass that are precipitating out of the atmosphere and so i'm going to guess it's up in the thousands of kilometers an hour like let's let's say 3 8700 oh, like this just the universe is terrifying you got all this space and it's cold and then you come across a planet and go, oh, what's this like? Oh, it's 8,000 kilometres an hour and it's horizontal glass rain. No, Excellent. go home. I'm just going home. <laughs> so, you know, I would strike HD 189733B off your next holiday destination. Right. So the Great Red Spot's looking pretty good at this point as being just the wind speed of the worst storm on Earth. I'll take that and run. <laughs> That's insane. Okay, so leaving stat attack behind, we've we've I've clearly failed in my knowledge of wind speeds in the universe. Bringing it back around to the research paper that we started with, right, which was talking about those wind speeds of you know around the boundary of the, the Great Red Spot, and 
if I remember correctly, they have been getting faster. They have, okay. yes. So why? What's going on? Well, okay, you're asking the hard questions now. Okay. Can I ask that one in a minute? Yeah. Let's start with just, we'll just remind everybody that what we're looking at is say, wind speeds of maybe 400 and something yeah. kilometers per hour increasing by, you know, maybe 8% over a decade, just sure. over a decade, which if you kind of track that into future is fairly terrifying. But mm. anyway. Yeah. I mean, if that, if that continues, that's not a great trend. But, you know, who knows? Who knows? So it's gone from let's call it 400 to let's call it 440. It's gone up by roughly that amount. Yeah. Yeah. Why? I mean, because the storm is slightly changing, because the atmosphere of Jupiter is just, just slightly changing. I don't think we've got a particularly succinct, pithy answer to that. Right. But I mean, with a system which can, over a period of time, change the size, at least in one dimension, of this storm... By like a really significant amount. Like, didn't you say it, it had sort of halved in... hundred years. Yeah, yeah. halved in a hundred years. To then change wind speeds by, let's call it 10%, is not hugely surprising. Like, there's a lot of angular momentum and energy to be shuffled around here. Yeah? And when you're changing the dimensions of this thing so significantly over the course of a hundred years, then well, it's all got to go somewhere. Absolutely, and yeah. So an increase in speed of one part of it or all of it of 10%, I, I'd, I'd buy that. Sure, that yeah. kind of makes sense. I guess where it becomes particularly relevant is that this these kind of measurements, which are not easy to make, let's mm. be honest. You sort of think, oh, yeah, we'll look at it. We'll watch it for a while and see how fast it goes. It doesn't really it's work. It's not that easy? <laughs> no, it's oh. not that work. Uh, what you've got to do is kind of generate vectors, which are little arrows that represent both uh, distance and time, so basically speed of a particular point. And in this case, the authors looked at uh, tens of thousands of these vectors and tracked them over the course of 10 years. So it's a significant piece of computational yeah, work. That's that's non-trivial. I'm guessing there's a lot of computers involved in this, in finding patterns and, and mapping things out and, and automating it. It's not people poring over photos going, that bit, that bit there, next photo, that bit. It's not that. No. No, there's a lot of computers involved. Even so, that's a lot of data to yeah. draw through. So if you're going to spend that much effort, I guess the natural question is why? What's the point? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, sometimes we do things, Emily, just because it's fun. But I'm guessing that there's a better answer than that. Not a lot of scientific research gets funded because it's fun. Oh, come on, putting the fun back in funding? Oh. oh. So why were they looking at this? Uh, so this is all to do with the fluid dynamics and understanding atmospheres because let's face it, we've got very different atmospheres here in the inner solar system, which we can study. And like from all accounts of people that I know who study even Earth's own atmosphere, there's a lot to be kind of found out more that we don't know oh, yeah. and understand. It's hellishly complicated. <laughs> really, really nasty. Um, so it's not surprising then that when you go to a kind of a completely different system, a completely different type of atmosphere in terms of our solar system, going to back to a primary atmosphere, that we need data to even begin to unravel what is this atmosphere doing? What is it going to, how is it going to change over time? And Jupiter gives us a lot of this information in a way that some of the other planets like Saturn don't. Because Saturn's just kind of a yellow ball. <laughs> it's lovely yeah, to some. Yeah, no offense or yeah, anything. You know. um, but it doesn't have the same kind of obvious features uh, at the sort of atmospheric level that allow you to do that kind of pinpoint, that bit there, where's that going? Okay, follow that computer model. It's much harder slash impossible yeah. to do. Yeah, so Jupiter's a great testing ground. So we, if we want to understand where is the energy coming from, where do these storms come from, how long do they last, what effects do they have on their host planet, and then that instantly tells you that the next question would be, well, how does the stuff that we learn about our solar system apply to planets in other systems? How do we find out if their atmospheres are lovely and nice like Earth's or horrible and nasty like Jupiter's? <laughs> Absolute hellscape. <laughs> or even worse, like Neptune's. Uh, yeah, because this is all, it's all model-based, right? Yeah. And so models depend on some really good guesswork some really good theory and a whole lot of data and then you just iterate that you know run your model does it match put more data in make more educated guesses get a few more equations put more data in cycle 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 and so observing jupiter observing the hell out of jupiter 
helps those models. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So it's cool. I mean, I love it how that, okay, we don't always have to go to exoplanet science. I know it's sexy and exciting and... But why not? Do it anyway. In my opinion, maybe slightly overfunded, but... (laughs) Only compared to other areas of uh, stellar physics. But no, I mean, honestly, we don't always have to take that leap, but I think it's interesting too in this case. Right. Well, we have, I I feel like we finally, after 80 something episodes of this podcast, got to something which is a pretty obvious thing to do a podcast about in an astronomy podcast, which is the great red spot of Jupiter. We finally got there. And not only that, Emily, we've actually identified another thing that we really need to talk about, which is Neptune, which is just up the road from Jupiter. It's actually quite a long way out, isn't it? Yeah, it's quite a way. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The distance scales are nuts. Yeah. You've got to walk to Heslington East to find our Neptune oh, here at York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It's a really long way away. All right. Well, look, we'll do that in a future episode. But listen, if people want to get in touch with us and correct any of the, I don't know, idiot mistakes that I've made during the course of these various podcast episodes or suggest an idea for a future podcast like, I don't know, Neptune and its and its ice iciness, then... Are there ways that they could do that, Emily? How could people get in touch? Oh, we have all of the ways. We have our own website, which is syzygy.fm. That's S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. Well done. Yes. Yep, I can I can do that now. I've been practicing. <laughs> Very good. Episode 84. You're really, really good at that. Yeah. Yeah. You can find all of our past episodes, all of the info, all of the links, all of the pretty pictures, everything, as well as a contact form where you can send us your thoughts and ideas and applause and congratulations and love. So you can do that through the website. How else? You can do it in a few characters in your favourite form of Twitter. Right, yeah. So we are Syzygy Pod at Syzygy Pod with the same spelling of Syzygy but with a P-O-D with on the P-O-D end. P-O-D on the end, yes indeed. We're also on Instagram, I think. Yeah. Syzygy Pod. I think that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty sure. I'm told it's a thing. And of course we're on the Facebook as well so if you go and just search for us at Syzygy Podcast then you'll find us there too. If you want to support the show, tell everyone you know that's the best thing. Find the person in your life that you think would get a kick out of talking all things universe and tell them that they should go and listen. Um, You should give us a rating and give us a review on your podcast client of choice. And if you want to become a financial member of the show, then you can go to patreon.com slash syzygypod where you can sign up to pitch in a a buck, a pound a month or more to help us keep the electrons flowing and to help us do the things we love to do when the world's open back up again, like live shows and festivals and stuff like that. So those are all the different ways that you can support the show. Listen, we should get out of here. Emily, it's been fantastic as ever. I will catch up with you in a week or so's time. Yep. See you later. All right. See everybody. Bye-bye. You know how, like, in the 90s and so on, there was all these, like, films about tornado chasers and how, like, mad they were? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they do crazy things like, there's a big tornado. It's the biggest tornado we've ever seen. Quick, drive our truck towards it. Go, go, go. And then we'll throw something in. It was just mad, isn't it? So do you think that, like, people who study Jupiter are kind of, in a way, like, storm chasers? Could be. That's a frightening thought. Because, you know, Hubble just sits there and puts out storm reports. Seriously? It does. I've, I've never sort of sat and thought about it. Hubble, the space telescope, it's it's pumping out its storm reports. Do you know what? If there are any Hollywood producers out there, I think I've got an idea for a screenplay. 